Call, the show where we go behind the curtain with the stars of the culture wars. I'm your host, Alexandra Marshall, and today we are joined by Warren Mundine. Warren, thank you for joining us today on Curtain Call. It's lovely that you can be here with us today. It's my pleasure. It's it's really great to catch up with you again. Yes, well, here on Curtain Call, we go behind the scenes with the stars of the culture wars, and you in particular have been a great culture warrior for Australian politics. I was uh, doing a bit of light stalking of you before our interview and I came across a quote in the Australian, I hope it's correct, uh, where you were quoted as saying, I'm not going to die, I've got too much work to do. And first of all, is that true? Uh, yes, it is. It actually is true. Uh, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna have to live to be about 200 here. The idea of never giving up is a really a, a great way to uh, to go through life. But just for our viewers who might not know, I've, this is my light stalking sheet, so I'm going to read it to make sure I get your history right because it is extensive. You were yeah. the national president of the Labor Party and you're now joined to the Liberal Party. You yeah. were CEO of the Native Title Service, Deputy Mayor of Dubbo, Senior Vice President of the Australian Government National Indigenous Council. I forgot that one right. And yes, director, yeah. of Australian, <laughs> director of the Australian Uranium Association, which I think we'll have mm. a little chat about in a minute. You yeah. also run your online video series, Mundine's Truth Talking, which everyone should check out. And you're an author of two books, Speaking My Mind and In Black and White. So mm. before we get started, I know some people who are in the culture wars feel as if their either gender or their ethnicity drives their politics and has sort of carved out their path for you. Um, do you feel that your Irishness has really driven your politics forward, given how much time you spend in the Labor Party? Uh, well, yeah, that's right. It's uh, I'm, I'm captured by my genes. Uh, my my uh, uh, from my mother's side, the Irish comes from, and we were a very um, very pro nationalist and, uh, and and strong uh, uh, you know, working class uh, people. And uh, you know, and my, and my go back to my grandfather and my RSI, uh, John John O'Donovan, and 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 the group. Uh, they were very. Uh, they come out to Australia to escape uh, the the British, and uh, and they've been very strong uh, Republicans and very strong uh, nationalists. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've got one Irish person in my family who was mayor of mm. Mudgee, Catherine, which I'm not really allowed to mention very often, but uh, oh. I know. I know the Irish connection to the Labour Party is very strong. So it's, um, yeah, it's not actually that unusual to find people on the Liberal or on Conservative and Libertarian politics who did begin their life in the Labour Party. Do you, like, what was it like to spend so long in Labour and then decide to switch to Conservative government? Was it a, a, a choice you made recently, like, you know, like in a short period of time, or were you sort of gradually rolling toward it? Well, you know, you know, what's that old saying? When you when you're young, you're a socialist, and as you get older, you become more conservative. Well, uh, look, uh, part of that's right with me. I was very, uh, I was very, uh, my, I was brought up in a very typical Irish Republican. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Catholics, where they were very strong Catholics, and that my grandparents and I, uh, my grandparents, and mother, and that used to herd us off to church every Sunday, and we all went to Catholic schools. Uh, and uh, and you know so so we're very um, uh, strong in that regard. I've always been also very strong in regard to a liberal democracy and uh, and the in uh, mm-hmm. business and commercial and, and private sector stuff. So I was very much a, a Hawke Keating type uh, Labor person, and I and I and I believe that the Labor Party has uh, changed in, in the last in the last fifteen years. 
changed radically and has moved to the left and forgotten the workers, forgotten the working class people. And that's why you can figures like 53%, 56% of blue collar workers now actually voting Liberal. Yeah, well, you're, you're not alone in that thought at all. I feel mm. more and more we keep uh, describing Australia at the moment as if we're trapped in a culture war. And part of that seems to be that the Labor Party has forgotten the working class and increasingly the Liberal Party are forgetting the middle class. And there seems to be this chase toward radical politics that we've importing from America and from Europe, leaving a large amount of Australians in the middle wondering what is going on. As someone who's so invested in politics like yourself, do you worry that we might be facing a, a political un- upheaval in Australia, or at least some uh, a period of time where our politics is going to be quite confused, where parties might move around or uh, where we might see some changing of drastic changing of policies and things like that happening soon? Oh, look, I have no doubt about that. It's, uh, you know, you look what's happening in America. Yeah, we seem to, with inflation and within a lot of other things, uh, sort of people used to say you were about 10 years behind uh, the United States. And I, and in this case, I, I'm uh, hoping that may be true, but also not true, that we don't actually follow the vitriolic uh, divide that's in the United States. And, it, and, and I mean, there's no sort of middle ground now. Uh, you know, Trump uh, was uh, the result of, of the disenfranchising of uh, middle America and the working class. Uh, they felt left really behind. And you had this elite uh, inner city um, uh, uh, politics, which which was driving the agenda at the higher echelons of, of public life, you know, and politics and that. And you see, you're seeing this stuff here in Australia too, where a very small minority, like uh, in, in the inner cities uh, have captured uh, so much of the of the Labor Party, and you see the battle now between, uh, you know, Fitzgibbons and and, uh, and Albanese. And I'm glad he's, he he stood up because uh, working class people, uh, the uh, the middle class people, really need uh, a voice at the moment because you know the the, the Liberal Party uh, was the voice of small business, uh, the voice of uh, that middle class uh, people. And even now you're seeing the struggle within that between the left and the right within the Liberal Party as well. And so, so we've got, we've got a ver- we, we're moving into very dangerous times. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, and a lot of the problems that are uh, joined up in this Liberal Party, Labor Party problem is we used to have quite a good balance between the two parties where one would get in power, drive some narratives forward, then they'd switch, and then the ones that were left behind would then catch up with the next party that came in. And now... We seem to have two parties driven by fringe politics as far as the voting base is concerned. And one of those... Yeah, that's pretty true. Yeah, and it's a shame because one of the biggest Mm. topics that's involved in this is, of course, the renewables topic at our energy future. And as someone who's spent so much time in the mining industry and in particular uranium, as we uh, broached on before, uh, the most important thing for a country facing geopolitical conflict, which the world may very well be facing soon, there's a lot of problems Um, outside Australia's shores to worry about is energy security. If your country is not energy secure and can't power itself, then you can't survive any sort of conflict, regardless if it's on your country or outside. Are you worried that we've sold or both parties are selling our entire energy future to China and their renewables program instead of focusing on the many gifts of energy that Australia has, including uranium, which could power Australia for the rest of the Earth's entire lifespan? Well, there's no doubt now. We are moving into a very unstable uh, global um, world, you know, because uh, you're just seeing the the challenges that are happening between uh, China, the rise of China, uh, which up until recently uh, people were were very happy with because we we believe that getting China into the international stage, that will uh, sort of, uh, you know, quieten them down about having a, you know, this global Communist, you know, because communism is is about you know globalism. They're trying to take over uh, other countries and places, and we saw that with the Soviet Union for about seventy years. Uh, with China, we were hoping that uh, for their cultural background, because China, if you look at their history, they were never an expanding uh, nation. They, they thought they were uh, the middle heaven, you know, between heaven and heaven and earth, and all the rest of us were barbarians. So they didn't want to mix with us. And they just sort of any time you saw China expand out was through the, the, the Mongols, 
uh, when the Genghis Khan and that coming to China and then went across into Europe. That was the only time that really had an expansion plan. The rest he was of the time very was pro expansionism. He, he was very, very pro expansionism, Genghis yeah. Khan. He, so, he went so, out. He expanded as far as you possibly expand. Oh, yes. He was. Yeah, that's right. And he, and, and so it was only under that Mongol rule that short period of time in China, in any global terms of about four hundred years. Uh, the other couple of thousand years, they they, they sort of uh, locked themselves out from the world because they thought they were so much higher and better off uh, and highly intelligent people, and the rest were all barbarians. Now, and, and so we thought that would have this effect on them. But what we're seeing in the, with this, especially with this president, is the shift from the Deng uh, principles and and actually moving back to those those old Maoist type approach to things, but a Maoist approach with uh, uh, with with uh, economic power, which the Soviet Union never had, and so this is so we're facing a a different animal than than the old Soviet Union. We're facing a a, a large uh, communistic nation. Uh, with uh, who are going back into that old tendency of, of communism, uh, but at the same time being a very powerful economic power. Yes, well, some people don't realise that Xi Jinping, he might mm. be quite sort of unassuming man, but he is a firm Stalinist and he has no mm. intention of westernising China because he believes that the westernisation of Russia was resulted in the fall of the USSR. So any business people who think he's going to start playing nice with their prospects is kidding themselves so you're quite right there um now we will get on to the main topic which i think uh most people will be expecting which is your work in indigenous community which you spent the better part of your life pursuing um yeah. you spent yeah you knew it was coming it was inevitable i knew yeah um, but i just suddenly realized i've done an old pol a political trick i didn't answer your question uh, no you didn't but which I'll, which I'll do very, very quickly do now, which is if, you're, if, if you believe in climate change and you actually uh, want to save the planet, then, then there's only one uh, power uh, that, that doesn't uh, uh, emit uh, emissions that goes 24-7, can then power steel works as well as electric uh, you know, power stations, as, as well as do residential power, as well as doing heavy industry and small industry power, and that was a nuclear. And I just find it strange that Australia has been so hijacked that uh, we actually ban nuclear power in Australia. I think we're one of the only few countries in the world that do that. And we look at all the other countries like China and India and uh, Europe, which uh, especially the French and that, they, they, they run on nuclear power in the United States and that in Britain even still got nuclear power. So I just find it really strange about if, you know, you, you're talking the talk but you're not walking the talk. Yeah, well, let me ask you one of the difficult questions that I promised, which I didn't even write down, but let's go for it anyway. Uh, what do you think of people like um, Matt Keane with his policies, which are very much pro-renewables and severely anti-uranium, anti-nuclear? How do you go about fixing Australia's energy problems when the Liberal Party, who, are, let's face it, is the only, the only party likely to engage in nuclear power, considering that the Labor Party has the Greens attached to them who will never allow it? What do you do when oh, you know the Liberal Party won't ever pursue it with people like Keane, or do you think he's like a blip and that that will that will finish and the Liberal Parties will turn back toward nuclear soon? Oh look, uh, look, I have no doubt, and it's and it's, it is a global conversation now. Uh, you, you you're looking at places like Germany, and, and it's less, they're, they're believing in this fraud. Uh, everyone believed that Germany was getting rid of nuclear power and getting rid of coal, but when you looked at the facts, uh, that, you know the facts are that they yes they did close down some coal-fired places and, and nuclear, but they're actually now ramping it all up again and they've actually extended their uh, their coal-fired uh, energy process a lot uh, into the into the near into the 2030 and 2050. So if you're talking about a emissions a zero world by 2050, well, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, and you look at uh, and and also we we kid ourselves. I always talk about Denmark being a you know 100 renewable. Well, the, the, the issue is that they live in a European grid. So they're living off French um, uh, nuclear power and Polish coal. And so, of course, they can, of course they can be able to you know, think, oh, look at us, we haven't got any, uh, you know, coal-powered or nuclear stuff. Uh, in actual fact, they're living off it because they're living off this grid. 
And so and then you see gas, uh, which I find another thing because I, I've worked in the gas industry too, is, you know, if you're talking about a transition process, gas is a major player. Of course, again, it powers 24-7 and it is able to do heavy industry as well as uh, uh, residential. We seem to be uh, uh, living in this, this naive uh, foolish world. Anyone who's in the green movement and says they don't support nuclear and, and don't support gas as a transition process uh, is living in a fool's paradise. And there's a significant lack of education as well. Most of the Greens that I talk to online, the kids who are fully on board the renewables and they hate nuclear, have no idea they've been living near a nuclear power plant their whole lives in Sydney. Well, we've had, had two in Sydney, actually. They're yeah. quite shocked when they discover there's been one chuffing away there quite happily their whole lives. Yeah, about 50 years. Uh, I really find it strange too when they talk about nuclear waste as well. Uh, of course, they think, oh, we don't want a nuclear waste station in Australia. Well, I said, well, you're 50 years too long uh, because there are nuclear waste in the, the centre of Sydney. In fact, every just about every hospital in Sydney and Melbourne and Perth and Adelaide and in and rural Australia is uh, has got uh, a nuclear waste in them. And we're trying to work out how to how to shift this stuff out into a safe area and that. And we're blocked by the we're trapped by these greens and say, oh no, we don't want to see this stuff transported and that. And and also when they look think about nuclear waste, they think of these huge repositories of of waste coming out of nuclear power stations is it's just false. It's it's only a tiny amounts. Uh, and it's and it's uh, and it and they can and the the, the incredible brains because I've been to world uranium conferences is amazing physics and geoscientists uh, you know and this is the people I listen to about listen to about climate change not environmental science scientists I listen to physics and I listen to uh, geo uh, uh, scientists because they look at things over a thousand years or over 500 years, they can work things out. And they, they're actually looking at, they can say they can safeguard uh, nuclear waste centres for a thousand years. And and they look at it because you, they they look at it like Australia doesn't exist in a thousand years' time. So how do we ensure that nuclear waste is protected without the existence of Australian nation? We could be splitting up in the different countries or we could be invaded or we could do so how do you make and that's and this is this is how they think and this is how they come out with incredible ideas about how to do this also uh, they're now moving into into the smaller power stations you know and that that come out of nuclear submarines so you can get in a nuclear submarine and go into sea for a year and still have oxygen pumping and still having power going and stuff like that uh, and and that's been able then to, to that you can have uh, you know, packs that you set up against your your factory, a large factory, and you can drive that factory, stuff like. And also re uh, renewables. You talk about renewables, uh, the 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 uh, nuclear power waste. You know, you, you talk about it being around for a thousand years or, or more. Uh, they they've worked out by twenty seventy that they'll be able to reduce uranium mining uh, because they'll be able to recycle this stuff. Yes, well, there's, there's also two things about nuclear waste that mm. a lot of the Greens leave out when they're talking about it. The first is that it's the most heavily reg regulated waste from an energy yes. process on the planet. It's also yes. the only waste that is actually fully contained at an end use of life. So it's not being pumped down into the atmosphere. It's not being leached down to rivers. It is contained within the nuclear rods, which are then disposed of under heavy, heavy regulations. The second yes. thing is that it's not actually dangerous to the survival of the planet. Radiation no. is not a planet killer, the globe is continuously bombarded with radiation. We dig it out of the ground, it comes into space, and it decays into an inert, an inert uh, compound. So it's not a planet killer. So these people who think, oh, you're going to end the world, you're not. You, uranium waste is not going to destroy the planet. It doesn't even have the capability of doing so. What is dangerous to the planet yeah. is when they're doing the renewables minings, there's quite a few mm. renewables mining in the rare earth industry that goes on, which produces thousands of tons of sludge, radioactive sludge a minute, which does leach into waterways, which does get into the groundwater and into the crops. And that in Australia, we ship it back to, I think it's Singapore, we ship our radioactive sludge back. Then in China, they just pour it into rivers. It's been destroying communities. I don't think anyone in the Green Movement realizes how much radioactiveness there is inside the renewables industry. It's not something that's just a function of the nuclear industry.
Yeah. Well, well, the, the people live. Uh, look, they, they don't understand it. Stand the science. So let's, let's be quite frank about that. Uh, you know, the radiation is everywhere, and me and you are sitting here currently at the moment being uh, bombarded with radiation. Uh, you get it, it when I was with the Beverly Mine uh, and with other uh, uh, uranium mines. The only the only worry the person handling you had to worry about being uh, radiated was uh, was the pilot who flew us in because they were being hit by more radiation waves than, than, uh, than when you're walking around a mine site. And uh, when you walk, you know, it's just, and you go, I've been in a nuclear power, uh, power stations and I've been in, the, you know, uh, a few around the world and I can tell you they are very safe, they're very heavily regulated, uh, that, that safety is the number one issue. They even plan uh, especially that they've made changes, especially after 9-11. And if anyone, can, and then you see that out at, at Lucas Heights, you know, they, that they, they put these, uh, what they call the bird nest around them and that, so that if a plane uh, is hijacked and, and rammed into it, that it doesn't, it doesn't uh, cause any nuclear accidents. These are lessons that were learnt out of uh, 9-11 and they, uh, and they also learnt out of Fukushima where uh, through a tsunami situation, uh, it caused some problems, but it. But the issue was, uh, you know, no one died from radioactive poison. No one died, and, and and all the deaths that were done at Fukushima was people who were two groups. One was the people who drowned in, sadly drowned in the in the in the, in the tsunami, and the other group were people uh, who uh, had heart attacks, and 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 died uh, when they were evacuated. And there's a lot of force stuff being put out and around. You go to Chernobyl, you actually can go in go to Chernobyl and you and it's a it's a, it's like an animal reserve. You can you can go there and see the animals. That's one thing uh, Chernobyl did was you know prove um, uh, the Simpsons and uh, and uh, and all these horror movies we see like Godzilla and that, that that you get these creatures and these monsters being created. Well you go to Chernobyl it doesn't it's just become an amazing uh, animal reserve. Yes, well, the, the thing that Chernobyl taught all the scientists was that their mm. predictions about how a worst-case nuclear meltdown would happen were mostly wrong. So although Correct. some people did die tragically, it was not the cataclysmic event that they thought it would be, and it did not persist for anywhere near as long as they thought it would. And, in fact, humans mm. suffered far worse than the environment did. The environment recovers very fast from radiation yeah primarily because for most of Earth's history, we've been exposed to far more radiation than we have right now. We're quite recent, whereas yeah. a lot of plant species, they're used to it. But that's a massive, yeah. massive tangent that we could go in for forever because nuclear yeah, energy no. is absolutely fascinating. So few people know anything yeah, yeah, about it. Yeah, it excites me, as you, as you know, because I sat as, as on, the, on the uranium board and also uh, was co-chair of the, of the Indigenous Uranium Committee. And, and you'll be very surprised about how many Aboriginal groups actually supported uranium. Uh, and uh, you know, so I, 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 I'm a bit of a bit of a nerd, I suppose, in this space because I get turned on by it. Yeah. Well, let's throw in a question that I was going to ask much, much later, but we'll throw it in now. Uh, wouldn't it be a, a way forward for Aboriginal communities to both preserve the environment and to uh, make some more money and business off the land to become more self-sufficient if Australia heavily invested in uranium and a nuclear future? Wouldn't that free up lots of space for the environment to recover because we wouldn't be coating ourselves in solar panels and wind farms and killing all our birds for no reason? And also to allow the Indigenous communities to uh, make deals with these mining companies, get jobs, you know, and run um, some of these rural communities with a bit more energy and some very real um, future prospects. Well, the Aboriginal communities have picked up on this very quickly. There's a, there's a myth that floats around in Sydney and Melbourne and that, that, that Aboriginal people are against mining, uh, which is not true. There's more than 6,000, nearly 7,000 Aboriginals actually work in the mining industry uh, across a range of jobs from, uh, you know, cleaners, uh, uh, chefs, uh, uh, plant operators, miners, uh, engineers, uh, and, and even mine supervisors and even, uh, well, Glencore, for instance, their chief operations officer is an indigenous bloke from Western Australia. He's, he's now a global executive within the mining industry. Uh, th th there's hundreds of millions of dollars that have come out of the mining industry for, uh, uh, for trust funds, uh, for education, for a whole heap of different programs there. 
Uh, in fact, there's a reform that needs to be done in this area because some of these huge funds, they're sitting on $600 million and they're, uh, they've, they've run very uh, good in regarding to uh, uh, in, in more investments and, and making more money. But when you go into the Aboriginal communities who own that trust, you, you see people living in abject poverty. So there has to be a reform done there where the funds, you don't, you don't destroy the principle of the funds, but you're actually getting um, uh, funds out there that are actually building uh, people's lives within these communities rather than leaving them in poverty. But in other areas, you know, you see, uh, you know, the, the mining industry puts in about $4 billion, just over $4 billion, back into Aboriginal uh, businesses uh, and uh, and into uh, Aboriginal communities. And they've made a huge, huge difference in, in, in some, in, in a lot of these areas, especially in the Pilbara and Kimberley's and up in the, uh, the Cape and other places, where their jobs have been created. They're skilling their, their workers up, so they're not they're, they're becoming tradies, they're becoming plant operators, they're going to universities, there's used funds going, in that, uh, going into education and things like that. So Aboriginal, there's a lot of Aboriginal communities who are uh, uh, you know, uh, acceptable to having mining on their land. And you're right, uh, by, by, uh, by having uh, this approach of uh, you know, nuclear power and nuclear energy, uh, and this is the other thing that people get caught up with, and you know, probably a lot of people in my generation as well, because we grew up under the under the nuclear nuclear threat of, of the nuclear holocaust. That, uh, that, that uh, you know, we're not talking in Australia and in many countries in the world. We're not talking about weapons. We're talking about energy, uh, which which will be of benefit to uh, improving people's lives, improving uh, people's uh, economic. Uh, 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 lifestyle, economic growth, and prosperity, and and that, using those monies that you know, build health and education systems that they need, and the infrastructures that they need, uh, and and there's and a good example of you know and the Greens like to go into these areas and and, and try and cause problems. So, well, like you see some of the votes uh, for mining, you know, you get like 99 votes to one against, and then they'll find that one person and use that tactic. Say, oh, hey, this bloke's an elder. Aboriginal people don't like mining because it's elder black. Well, the other 99 elders have said, we well, know we want it. And so they have these massive campaigns in, in banks and in, in investment uh, in, uh, areas and they, and they try and stifle this stuff. One of the most bizarre things, again, if you're talking about if you're a true climate change believer, is this thing they, they chant, we, we want renewables, we don't want mining. Well, how are you going to build the wind farms and the solar panels without mining? Yeah, well, let's let's be clear. Nuclear weapons and nuclear power are two very different technologies. Yes. That'd be like being afraid of your car because you don't want to be hit by some C4 exploding. They're not the same thing. <laughs> They're not even the same yes. technology. Um, but my concern is if the Australian mining community, both in coal and uranium, is doing so much for these Aboriginal communities, what happens when we offsell all of our mining resources to China, who are doing the renewables mines? Because the main reason China, just for your viewers who don't, might not know, China does the renewables mining because it's not that we don't have the resources, but it's a very dangerous and dirty sort of mining. It's open cut. It has terrible byproducts, and Australia wouldn't be able to keep its green uh, UN little five stars if we started mining renewables. So. We won't be able to do it. China will mine the renewables and they'll sell us back these wind turbines. But what happens to the Aboriginal communities when we shut down all of our coal mines and we shut down all of our uranium mines? Do those communities just get left to rot once that happens? Well, we've seen that already. We've got we've got uh, 40 years' experience of it in regard to Indigenous communities where where mines have uh, went through their life and they've stopped. And you, and you look at those communities which were thriving communities with, with really strong infrastructure. Well, now the range of mines are closing and it's going uh, It's going into a rehabilitation stage. Uh, those, those shops are closing. Those, uh, all that infrastructure is starting to close down. And, and you're going to see a reversal of that, those communities. And, we, and we've seen it across the country. You, you see where uh, some, you know, some mines and that have closed down and those communities have really just reverted back 40 years. Oh, that's absolutely terrible. I mean, you've spent most of your life fighting 
the problems of bureaucracy getting involved in Indigenous politics where the money goes to the bureaucrats, not to the people. Um, and on Truth Talking, I remember reading that you said that there was a report done where they admitted they don't really know how much money is being spent. They don't really know where it's going and they don't know if it's producing any real results for communities. So are you worried that um, we are funding the bureaucracy and not the communities? And if so, yeah. are we asking a corrupt and broken system to essentially investigate itself? <laughs> uh, oh, that, well, that's a good question there. Uh, it's the, um, uh, look, uh, you only have to look at the productivity reports that have been done over the last, you know, for the, the, the last 15, 20 years. And, and it's all there in black and white uh, that uh, most of the money does, does not even get out of the capital cities or out of the bureaucracy. It's it's, uh, it's it's very much uh, you know a bureaucratic uh, uh, keeping the bureaucracy alive without and, and it's and not focused on end results. Now I've come from the business community, and and we're quite clear about uh, you know what the end uh, what the end uh, focus should be, and we and we work towards that getting that focus, and we put up timelines, we put up uh, we put up what the, what the actions are to, to reach that uh, reach that. Uh, uh, the uh, the end end results and we and we put up uh, who's responsible for it so we can kiss them or pick them depending on uh, depending on that uh, they've reached their targets and stuff so so we, we, it, that was common sense to me and, that, and I was very much heavily involved in setting up the the uh, closing the gap except for the, the targets but because I sold it to the Labor government that they, you know that if you're really going to solve these things or well, why can't you have uh, you know a target of of eliminating um, uh, 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 eye disease within Aboriginal communities within five years. And then you just focus on that and you just bang, bang, bang. It's a, the problem was the process. They got these targets uh, uh, with really business-like targets and, 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 and time frame, and then they gave it to the bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy uh, is, is more about process and, and, and all we did was people processing. Then you said, why are you processing the way you're doing this? And they said, oh, because it makes us look busy. We're doing, look, running around doing well, things. We're not focusing yeah. on the result. <laughs> That's exactly what people have started to notice. I mean, particularly with the rise of identity politics, which is, uh, I know it's been around for a while, but it's really come into its stride in the last five years. Do you find that identity politics has focused more on living off problems rather than solving them because most of what they seem to focus on, they shy away from real solutions to problems with the Indigenous communities, like ensuring that the children are getting education up to the same standard as white kids or city kids. They let, they have, the Aboriginals have one of the poorest attention, uh, attendance of school in the world and you don't really hear about it from the identity politics groups. They're more interested in the activist slogans, changing dates, things, anything they can take to a protest march and get some Instagram photos on, they're happy. But do you feel that identity politics has sort of, it wants to live off the problems that face our Indigenous communities rather than solve them? Well, it, it goes back quite a few years. When I was a young kid, there's this black conscious movement, which is all about blackness. They were considered friends things, and they were and they all almost laughed at within uh, black communities. And, and it was a very uh, a very socialist, communistic approach to things, and and, and the evils of uh, uh, other people who, who oppress black people and stuff like that, and, and excused, you know, like oh, I'm poor because uh, these evil white people uh, were oppressing me, and therefore. It's no good for me to get a job or get educated or anything like that because it's, it's irrelevant because I'm just going to be still oppressed. Uh, Warren, you, you, you don't realise you're oppressed. And uh, and I said, well, what are you talking about? And they said, well, look in the mirror, you, you know, for you will always be oppressed by white people. You, you and I'm Are you freaking kidding me? Your Irishness uh, oppresses you. I mean, we give life. Yeah, well, really I know. I've got time. more, more you don't oppression get there. Tell you. That's it. Your Irishness is definitely it. That's where you're being oppressed. Yeah. Well, I was in Ireland in 2011 and I wanted to uh, trace down where my uh, grandfather's family come from. And I went down there and I, and I sitting there talking to them and they said, oh, and, and, you know, during the war, uh, the Catholics versus the Protestants and that, uh, William of Orange and that, we, we chose the wrong side, we chose the Catholic side. 
Warren is back in high definition. It's my fault for giving him <laughs> crap about being Irish, I'm pretty sure. Because you were yes. you're oppressed for being Irish, right? We were now when you're having oppressed you to go Irish. Irish. I reckon you deliberately cut me off there because you're a very oppressive person. Uh, you know, I am. It, it just just proving well, uh, just proving my point about criti uh, critical race theory. But well, anyway, you, I just find way, it totally, totally bizarre. I found out that my family did not tolerate Catholics because they were from the Protestants. So that's what it was. It wasn't the yeah. Irish; it was the Catholic part that got you cut off. Yeah, that's right. That's what exactly what it is. Mate, gee, I've got an impressed in, in, in oppressed group across the board, Aboriginal, Irish, bloody Catholic. What next? But you're a man, so I still outrank oh, yes, you. Oh, I'm a man I too, yes. Yeah. I could be accused of being a white man, man as well because of my Irish background. Half white, you're gone. There's no oppression yes. points left on your card. Yes. Uh, wait. <laughs> Look, I was going to make a point about do you think that perhaps uh, in particular ind Indigenous communities, I can't talk, that human rights might be being sacrificed in favour of politics? Because we see particularly that, for example, feminist groups won't touch Aboriginal cultures where women are being abused because they don't want to intersect with Indigenous politics. Um, and we see the kids getting left behind. So instead of the kid having an equal right to an education that a white kid will have in a city area, these kids are letting fall through the cracks because of their ethnicity. Now, do you find that there is this strange play between social politics and our basic fundamental rights as Australian citizens? And and you look at the statistics, you know, you look at the CIS statistics that come out last week from Jacinta Price and you looked a few, few weeks earlier, uh, which come out from uh, Marcia Langton, uh, even though Marcia is on the, on the left, uh, uh, showing, uh, from Melbourne University, showing this, this similar statistics that uh, if you're living in rural and remote Australia, you're an Aboriginal person, then, then you're, you know, the, the life expectancy between uh, Aboriginals and, uh, and non-Aboriginals in Australia is a lot lower. But when you put Aboriginals in cities, with Aboriginals living in rural and remote Australia, it's even more lower. So you've got about a 10-year gap between Aboriginals living in uh, rural and remote Australia compared to what Aboriginals are who live in the cities. And so you, you do have this, uh, this, this disconnect uh, 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 from people who are living in cities and that about the life and what's happening in, in these communities. Prior to, um, to COVID, I used to be spend about three days a week in, in, in rural remote Australia, uh, uh, going out into remote communities, going into uh, rural communities and talking to people, Indigenous people and that, and you can and, and, and you just see the complete disconnect. You see the, the violence, you know, it's 36 times an Aboriginal woman in a, re, in a regional remote community will, will experience domestic violence, sexual assault and a whole lot of raft of other things. Can you imagine this? 36, 36 times more likely. So you put that in a suburb in Sydney, there'd be an outroar. There'd be, there'd be police put out there. There'd be a whole lot of things being done in regard to fixing that problem. The suicide rate, this, you know, kids are seven times more likely, you know, kids as young as eight, nine and ten committing suicide. Uh, you know, at that age, I, I was looking forward to a long life and, uh, and, and a prosperous life. These kids just don't see any future and they're, and they're committing suicide. Uh, sexual abuse of kids. It's just uh, uh, this raft of other things. Uh, you know, and this, I, this thing about, you know, you know, there's no jobs out there. Well, I've been to these communities. There are job opportunities out there. It's just that Aboriginal people don't fill those jobs and that they do need to have private sector uh, investment and they do need to have Indigenous, private, commercial, profitable businesses, small to medium, that can work in these communities and do a lot of difference. That's one thing I do give the, the, the federal government is that this focus on business development and economic development is is pretty strong and has been very strong since 19, uh, uh, since 2013. Uh, but there's a lot more that needs to be done, and, and, we, and the important part, and this is why I'm disappointed about with Ken White and his uh, changing the closing the gap, where he dropped the target of school attendance. The problem we had, and this is uh, when I was chair of the Prime Minister's Advisory Council, was 
that uh, if, uh, if 100 kids were in a community, 50 kids turned up on Monday and 50 kids turned up on Tuesday, were they the same kids? And we yeah, didn't well, know. And we well, know education that... Is the, education is the great liberator of society. If people are educated, then they can... If education is the great liberator of society, so if people are educated, then that next generation have the tools required to lift themselves out of poverty and to find Correct. jobs. But if, but I, it feels to me like the bushfire situation where we know, no matter how many reports we do, and we know what works, we know how to fix the problem. We did it with um, Western cultures. We know what we need to do with Aboriginal cultures to help them, and that's to ensure kids go to school, to ensure that the laws are enforced to protect women and children and also adult men as well. But we don't seem to want to because that involves some difficult conversations with social politics. And so instead we throw more money at bureaucracy, which keeps the activists happy but doesn't actually help the people who most desperately need to be helped. Yeah, and I've written articles about it. Uh, you know, I've been to a lot of these communities. I, I did an article for The Australian called The, the Donkey Proof Fence, you know, where, the, where this, uh, they put these business managers in these communities. Uh, when you're thinking with a title like business managers, they're actually going to be looking at starting businesses well that's that was it's almost like the people's democratic republic of north korea you know it's it's not it's it's not a, a de very democratic place well these people had nothing to do with business this guy had this genius idea of uh, because he noticed there's a lot of donkeys wandering through the streets so he said why don't we build a fence around the town and so they spent uh money and they build a fence around the town but what they didn't do was the roads coming in and out of the town they didn't put down grids like those cow grids you see. So the donkeys just, uh, instead of walking, uh, uh, because they stopped by the fence, they just walked down the road. And it never made any difference in the town about, and this is what this is what these bureaucrats and people do. They come up with these genius ideas uh, and they and they and, and it just doesn't work. And it doesn't, and it's also short term. It's only work was only there for the people to build the fence. They they didn't have this concept about uh, uh, you know business sustainability and how you can do these things. And how you and how you can have small business operations. When I was in this place, I picked out four businesses that could have been set up in this small community, and 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 no one really took it serious about kids attending school. You know, people said the rhetoric, "Oh, we've got to get kids to school." Then we said, "Well, how how come you only got forty five percent school attendance? You know, well, how come you only got this and that?" And and they said, "Oh, well, it's really hard." And I said, well, "It's not really hard. All you got to do is work with the parents and get." The kids to school and that's why i thought heaven, it was heaven forbid you ever suggest building a boarding school where disadvantaged kids could go and get fed and have somewhere safe to sleep so they can get their education i mean heaven yeah. forbid anyone do anything productive because then you'll be accused of stolen generation rather than something that white kids and western kids have access to but you can't do it in aboriginal communities and this is that's another one of the lies uh, they think that that you get these kids are going uh, being uh, stolen and taken away and and they're losing their Aboriginality by going to these areas. <clears throat> well, that's just a whole lot of crap. Uh, I I'm the chair of the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation. We've got a thousand kids going through that program. The parents and those kids. There's another three thousand kids lining up to fill those positions. And they're not being forced to do it. They see an opportunity to get a good education, to be able to build a career for themselves and be able to buy a house, feed their families and build a future for their kids who can build a future for their kids. And they're just lining up. So every position that we fill, we could have three other kids wanting to get into those programs. And and, and those kids also have an influence on the school. So the schools have become very accommodating to their families and very accommodating to uh, to to the kids in that in those schools with their culture and everything. So it's it's amazing uh, what's happening, and and so these people they don't have a clue what they're talking about by by saying oh that you know we want these kids uh, to stay in these communities. Well, when you've got a community of two hundred people, you you can't get a high school in there. How are they going to get the, the, the smallest boards of, of, of courses and programs that can help them to build their future for themselves and have an opportunity about getting jobs and, and, and building a business if they want to build a business? So I just... Well, what, uh, 
that's just propaganda. It's just nonsense. The statistics, in fact, there's been a lot of statistics done by the Productivity Commission and also by the large accounting firms, and, and it just doesn't stack up. The results of kids attending school and boarding school is like a 95% graduation rate. That's even bigger than the wider uh, non-Aboriginal population graduation rate. What these people do is they deny these Aboriginal children their right as individuals to an education and to a future by deliberately trapping them inside their, their, their old cultures and their remote areas. Because if those kids get ahead and, and make their own way, then the grievance politics are over for the activists. And it's just really sad because no one seems to care about the children involved and what their life is going to be like. Um, yeah. I just find that really sad. But I just thought we'll get into some uh, difficult... I'll challenge you now. I'll give you some difficult questions and we'll see how we go for a bit of fun. You can give a pass if you don't want to answer them, but we'll see. <laughs> exactly. I told you I was, I was evil. Uh, one thing that uh, was being talked about a lot now is that radical Marxism seems to be selling a lie, that only Aboriginal Australians can be truly Australian. And I suspect that Europeans could be here for 100,000 years and they'd still... Uh, demonise colonial descendants as not being Australian. Do you find that's quite a toxic way to go about race relations in Australia and that it's done more damage and set race relations back um, by this insistence that it's completely separate? You can't be Australian unless you are Aboriginal. And so all these people who've been here for, you know, 200 years are suddenly being disenfranchised from their own country. Oh, it's just nonsense. Uh, Aboriginal people don't even think that. You know, I'm talking. I'm talking in a general term. You know, the vast majority. Oh, yeah. of it's just. It's just these idiots who have been in, indoctrinated in these universities uh, with this Marxist theory and stuff like that. Uh, Aboriginal people are very proud Australians. Uh, that you know, you see them. You see them when they go. Uh, you see them all the time. They fought in wars when they didn't have full citizenship. Uh, they've that is since you know uh, going back over a hundred years. My family in that fought in wars for this country, and we're proud to serve. Uh, there's whole heaps of uh, Aboriginal people out there. You see all those six or seven thousand people working in the mining industry. They're very proud of being uh, workers and and providing for their families and being Australians. Uh, they're very you know all these arguments. Like a few years ago, this this argument has come up about Australia Day. I was in actually in Kununurra working on my TV show, and and I and and they, all the media from Sydney rang me in Melbourne and said, "What you know? What, what do Aboriginals think about this?" And I said, "Well, I'm standing here with a, a whole lot of Aboriginals here. I'll give you. The, I'll hand over the phone to them. I handed over the phone, and I said, "What do you think about Australia Day?" And we said, "They said, why? What's the problem?" <laughs> and that was yeah, like. What's, what, what are you talking about? They, like they had no clue uh, that, what are you talking about? And they said, oh, in Melbourne there's this big demonstration. And I said, oh, really? You know? <laughs> yeah, Melbourne's always been a bit weird. Usually the rest of the country just ignores what goes on in Melbourne. It's like Canberra. It's not really a thing. <laughs> that, they've become the protest capital of Australia, Melbourne. Anything, anything that they could protest about, they'll, they'll just pull a thousand people out. I just, look, that. They go out and have barbecues. They go out and have fun. They love the public holiday just like anyone else. You see people doing even, uh, uh, you know, welcome to countries at these at these uh, Australia Day events. You see Aboriginals doing performances and and dance and and stuff at these. In fact, I, you know, I, I used to be a very groovy dancer when I was a young bloke, and I used to I used some of these dances at these uh, at these at these Australia Day events. You know, uh, look. It, yeah, the uh, Aboriginal people, uh, you know, the, you know. Of course, we've got a a good, bad, beautiful, and ugly history. In fact, I know name me a country in the world that doesn't. There's none that exists, and not every country's had a a good birth. Uh, Australia had a better birth. We didn't have to get a, a go to a war to create our country. Uh, it was it was done, you know, through the vote. It was done through people. And 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 you know, any name me in the last fifty years since 1970 a law that was discriminating against Aboriginal people. Name me a law. There's none. Uh, you know, people talk about Aboriginals getting the vote. Well, uh, you know, it was only Queensland and, and, and Western Australia that hung out. And that that happened. And, and then it was the Menzies government 
you know, the, all these lefties hate Menzies, a conservative right winger and that. Well, he, he was the guy that forced Queensland and Western Australia to, to come in line with the rest of Australia and give Aboriginals the full vote. And that was in 19, 1962. And so you, so this, 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 uh, this idea about, you know, uh, the, the oppression and that, uh, yeah, of course, things happened badly in the past. Like the first 13 years of my life, I lived under the Aboriginal Protection Act, but we got rid of it. And we got rid of all those uh, laws. In fact, I would argue since, you know, the around the 1950s onwards, uh, there's been this positive, as they call it, positive discrimination in helping Aboriginals get to school, in helping Aboriginals get an education, helping Aboriginals get into jobs, helping Aboriginals to get and run their own businesses, you know, helping Aboriginals uh, not get into jail there's a whole lot of programs and billions of dollars are being spent on in these things the only problem is 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 that it's run by the bureaucracy that 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 isn't focusing on outcomes but and this idea yeah the last 15 years the only time i've been someone said to me what's it been like in the last 15 years and i said have you been racially abused and i said yes i have and i said oh that's terrible who who did that and i said it's usually people on twitter who have hashtag anti-racist uh, hashtag I'm a left winger or a socialist. They're the ones who have racially abused me. They've they've called me dreadful names. Uh, I won't say them here because you're such. You right. know, you're a, of course, uh, I could. I wouldn't let you do that here, but I, I know what you mean. And you yeah. raise a really interesting point, which is that first of all, the reason Australia took a while to catch up on rights is because we'd only been around as a coherent legal entity as a nation for 200 years, and for the opening hundred of that. We weren't even, we had wars to deal with and we were quite scattered. It's a massive nation and we were trying to build it from scratch at the edge of the world in an era where we didn't have international travel and, and communication across oceans like we do now. So we were working pretty fast compared to what we had to, to deal with as a, as a nation. It was amazing that we got this far. Yeah, and look, I, history is what it is. You know, I always say history is what it is. It, 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 it's not there to to make you happy you're not there to make you sad it just is what it is and i don't judge uh, people on 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 the past i judge them on what they're doing today and what they're doing to move into the future and how they unite and work together and i can tell you this on that on that uh, on that benchmark australia is doing a friggin' fantastic job. Are we perfect? Of course we're not perfect. You know, we're human beings. Human beings make mistakes. Human beings are able to correct those mistakes and, and move on and do things and build stuff, you know. And, uh, and it's been, Australia has done a fantastic job. I argue with my American friends. I say, you know, you always rave on about America being the greatest country in the world. I'll tell you what, Australia has, did amazing things working with its indigenous people has done amazing things uh working with uh the, you know the colonizers and other people who have come here and especially with the migrants who have come here post second world war who worked so hard in the 50s and 60s and 70s to build this economy and get us decent coffee and <laughs> decent food and doing a great best, and best coffee we... in the world australia has the best coffee <laughs> in the world and the best tea i might add where coffee um, snobs? I, I saw a thing that said something you'd never hear an Australian say overseas. Gee, this is good coffee. Exactly. That is, that is true. I nearly died in North America. There was no coffee. But you raised a really great point, and that is when – I'll let you go soon – but when um, uh, Europeans land in Australia, it's on record as being the biggest class, clash of cultures that we have on record where the time gap between – the civilization was the greatest. It's at least 20,000 years, perhaps more. And to think that this nation started with um, an ancient civilization, a ragtag bunch of not only convicts, but very poor free settlers who had almost nothing. It's incredible how much we've managed to achieve in 200 years that we are here together and we've built all these beautiful cities and a country based upon liberty and freedom. And we've been a very successful entity um, as the Australian people. And it worries me when I, I looked out last year and saw these activists tearing down statues um, and defacing memorials of the people who helped to build this country. I don't think that does anything for the coherency and the internal civil peace of a nation when um, you've got activists defacing the relics of Australia. I mean, what did you think when you saw that going down the street? Did you think, oh, oh this is going to cause some problems? 
Uh, well, it's not uniting us. Uh, uh, you know, Aboriginals as Aboriginal people, we we like to protect our heritage, and, and there's an amazing rock carvings and rock paintings, and that go back thousands of years. Sydney Harbour's full of incredible uh, uh, ancient Aboriginal sites, and we put and and we protect them. We we put them in that national parks, and we do things, uh, and. And we argue that case, but you can't you can't argue that case when you're tearing down someone else's cultural assets and destroying them. And and also, it, I just find it bizarre about you know what you're going to uh, we're going to tear down a statue of someone, and that automatically uh, wipes history. It automatically uh, 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 makes a, a better world. We all start singing and dancing in the street with flowers in our hair and all this type of stuff. That is nonsense. That is just a vicious. Uh, uh, div divide and it splits us. Australians have, you know, and I'm talking about all Australians here, uh, we have of, of things uh, that really unite us. You know, and, and people are starting to notice this is one of the, my fears too. You know, we have this knockabout, you know, take the piss out of each other and have fun and do things. And now, because of, you know, cancel culture, the, the woke people and that that you, you can't you know we're losing we're losing that uh, you know knockabout Aussie character which all of us had Aboriginal uh, the new migrants who come here uh, you know the the, the 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 people who were here before the other, the colonizers and we've built some, we've got some great institutions and in which we made our own yes we've got the Westminster system but we've also put in a bit of a, like the America we have a Senate represent the states we have uh, we have these elections uh, we've had uh, incredible things that we've exported to the world like like the like the like the the, the secret ballot you know so people can't be uh beaten up and, and, and when they've got to stand in the room and put their hands up they can go into a little uh, you know the bit of bit of paper and a pen as my father-in-law says our democracy pens going behind a uh, into a little box cardboard box and, and using a piece a Pen, a pencil and, and a bit of paper. I think we should go back to that one with the way things are going in the US. I think we'd be a lot better off if we had pens, papers and stamps on our hands to say you've been here, you can't come back and vote yeah, again. I, yeah, I like that <laughs> idea I, of what Indians do where they actually put an ink spot on your farm, yeah. <laughs> I'd rather have that than the problems that the US has got right yeah. now. Um, I've got three more quick questions for you and then I'll let you go. Um, two of them are hard. Uh, the first one is, do you have a favourite Aboriginal religion that you subscribe to or do you subscribe to any Aboriginal religions or stories that you want to quickly? Uh, oh, look, I, I, I love the, uh, the Gumigara. Uh, the Gumigara story is from Western Bunjalung and, and I'll put up my wedding ring because it's on my wedding ring. Uh, there it is. Wow. Uh, and it's uh, an Aboriginal uh, designer designed it. My wife's has the, the female side of that story. What the Gumigara is, the ceremony with, where Aboriginal Western Bundjalung country travelled to the east, uh, to Gawena Headland, uh, Evans Head, and we had ceremonies there where you uh, met your future spouse and you oh, went off. And, uh, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great ceremony. So that's what's, uh, that story is on my, uh, in, on my wedding ring and it's on my wife's wedding, wedding ring. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's lovely. It's lovely uh, story about, a, you know. Yeah, you know, that's what we don't hear enough about. We don't hear enough about these uh, great cultural um, experiences and stories. I, I find that's just missing from today's discussion. Yeah. Um, now, my really hard question which I thought, why not try it on one? Uh, Mundini sounds pretty, uh, pretty keen. What do you think <laughs> of the hunting? What do you think of the hunting of endangered species by remote Indigenous communities? Things like the dugong and the sea turtles, where they're not being hunted by canoes; they're being hunted in pinnies, runabouts. Do you think that should be allowed, or if something's endangered, is it endangered for everyone? The same rules for everybody. Can, can I say something that isn't culturally correct here? Sure. <laughs> uh, the, the, the dugong is a very uh, sacred animal uh, to the to the Torres Strait Islanders, and in that, and they use it in ceremony, and they use it in food, and every time you go there, they they, they give it to you as 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 a welcoming thing. I'll, I'll be quite honest; uh, it it tastes like chewing rubber. fact of the matter is we know how we got to this area uh, where uh, endangered species are. We need to protect those endangered species. 
and we need to look after them because if, if you talk like dugong, if you're talking about that as a sacred animal, which is part of your ceremonial stuff, if you if you if you keep on killing it when it's endangered, then what's going to happen is that you're not going to have a sacred animal and you're not going to have these ceremonies going into the future. So you must uh, you must uh, you must protect it, and that's what we uh, we need to do. I'm glad that. Um uh, you've been able to join us today. I have got a, a fun question that we always finish with on Curtain Call, which is if you could have dinner with anybody in history, alive or dead, who would it be and what would you ask them? Um, yeah, I'd, um, I'd actually like to sit down with Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King uh, because these two people suffered under, under racial oppression and yet after they got released, uh, they were able to uh, sit down and have dinner with, like, well, Nelson Mandela used to sit down and have dinner with his jailers. And that, that reconciliation, that uh, that forgiveness, I'd like to understand that and I have, I'd love to have that conversation about it, you know. And and, and also Martin Luther King's, I'd uh, love to have my children ju uh, uh, judged by the character, not by the colour of their skin. I, I'd just love to have that, you know, a cup of tea and a bit of food and, and go from there. And a good cup of coffee, Australian coffee. Yeah, good Australian coffee, of course, yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Warren. It was a fascinating discussion and you have a lovely afternoon. Okay, thank you very much. I'll catch you later. Thank you for joining us on Curtain Call. We are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all good podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.